Welcome to Journal Spotting. Are you worried that the ocean is dying and that maybe your favourite dolphin could become extinct? Want to know what you can do to help? Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome to the Climate Zone listeners. I am Dr LJ Smith and I have Dr Barnaby Hirons with me today, helping you dissect the complex interplay between health and climate change. That's right. Welcome back listeners to another awesome episode. Um, and before we get into the interview with the brilliant Richard Hickson, and you are going to love him, um, I thought we should just touch on a little bit on COP27 because um, that was in Egypt really recently and it seems to have sort of come and gone in an absolute flash um, especially compared to COP26 where people seem to be talking about it for ages. Yes that's true Um, and it's weird that it went in such a flash because it started with some kind of big statements and Antonio Guterres declaring we are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator and you'd think something like that might have prompted some decisive action But unfortunately, many feel that this analogy remains stubbornly true, despite all of the negotiations. So if you somehow missed it in the news, here are some of the key pros and cons of COP27. Should we start with some pros, Barney? Yeah, why not? Let's start positive. (laughs) Um, We've already given people a bit of a a pre-ramble of making it sound quite negative. So let's start with some positive. Okay, Um, there was a like reading obviously we, we weren't there but we were reading a lot about it and it seems that like there's a vast amount of twos and fro's and like at the 11th hour after it being delayed and went gone on and on and on western governments including europe agreed to establish a dedicated fund to assist developing countries in essentially responding to hazards and disasters that are caused or aggravated by climate change and of course this will be you know, things like extreme weather events and such like that. Um, And so this is called the Loss and Damage Agreement. And um, along with this, along the same sort of basis, there was also a pledge to increase um, climate change, what they call climate change resilience, for 4 billion people by 2030. Um, So this isn't necessarily reparations. This isn't, they already have made pledges to give lots of money to sort of, to help things which have already been in the past. It looks like this is more of a, Um, building up a fund for future damage and problems which come up. Yeah, so I think that the fact that loss and damage made it in at all is great, Mm. but it was very 11th hour and it's a bit unclear to me exactly how the fund will be administered. It seems pretty vague. But, you know, richer nations are starting to play their part in helping countries who've been bearing the brunt of climate change impact, or at least pledging to. Um, And... I, I guess overall, it wasn't everything that the lower resource nations would have wanted or are entitled to, given given what they're facing. But it's definitely a step forward compared to last year when this was not even, you know, on the yeah. agenda. It wasn't there was there was no chance of that being pledged. Um, I guess also on the plus side, there was increasing support for tackling ocean health, which is the subject of this podcast. And it seems that um, the idea of saving our oceans being really a crucial part of saving the rest of the planet is really coming up on the agenda, which is a real positive. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, this interview was done before COP27. So um, a lot of what we discussed was this uh, idea that, you know, 
why aren't people talking about the ocean? But actually, look, people are starting to talk about the ocean. That's really good. Uh, COP27, at least were talking about it, even though there weren't really many big decisions or decisive actions. So, okay, a few pros, a few pros. There's a few sort of positive aspects to it. But some of the cons, um, and I think for me, the thing which it really I kind of, it's very difficult to get your head around, I found it very quite shocking, was that um, the, the many countries, and they really this is the fossil fuel dependent countries, we know who they are, um, and some of them hold a lot of wealth and a lot of sway. We're really trying to push back on this idea of a 1.5 degree target, which is, you know, I think people have accepted and it seems like it was pretty much set in stone at the last COP. But no, people actually again tried to say, oh no, maybe, one, maybe 1.5, maybe we could go a bit higher, that sort of thing. And this was really resisted by many countries and has has stayed. Um, but there was also you know, lots of these lots of talk about fossil fuels, about making some fossil fuels more green than others and sort of allowed and trying to really water down the idea that it's, um, you know, that fossil fuels are really, we need to get away from them. And it, the overall, the conversations look complicated murky and i don't know from my perspective i think they're frankly quite concerning that we're still having these conversations yeah it really shows that even things that we think are accepted and as you say locked in you have to constantly fight for because there's always someone trying to undo that and who will benefit from pushing these targets back and of course the 600 strong party of fossil fuel lobbyists who were at cop you know it was a big part of that that's up 25 percent from last year which again is just shocking because at COP26 there was discussion about the over-representation of the fossil fuel lobby and yet here we are with an increase in 25%. So huge pressure from them, obviously, not to abandon fossil fuels. Um, and they will continue their extremely strong resistance because they're so invested. Absolutely. And what, of course, this is, their, this is their money, this is their livelihood, this is everything. So, um, yeah, and yeah, again, just following on from last, you may remember last year, there was a big discussion about, should we be saying we're trying to phase out or phase down fossil fuels? And as you may expect, this year, they, haven't, they are still on the phase down rather than phasing out fossil fuels, which is, again, a bit, a bit of a disappointment for activists. Yeah, and it might sound a bit... Um like it's semantics, but actually these things make a difference to then what leads from those, what pledges are mm. made and what, what pressure is put on. So I do think it's important. Um, again, another con we have to really point out is the terrible sex inequity seen at COP27. So 34% of negotiating team members were female. Some teams had 90% male. Um, and this is just really terrible in itself. It's not representative of the world we live in. It's not representative of many of the kind of leaders in the countries that are represented. And it's also just a general indicator of the lack of equality, because to be honest, it's it's not that difficult to get a representative sex ratio. And if we can't even achieve that, many other aspects of a proper representation of all the people affected by um, climate change who have a stake in these conversations are just not there. And that has a huge impact in the conversations that are had and on the action that's taken. Yeah, too right. I mean, it's kind of, it is crazy, isn't it? it just, I don't know. Anyway, it, it shouldn't be crazy. I suppose it's, it's not actually surprising, perhaps, but it still seems, I don't know, it's one of these not very surprising, but still shocking facts when you actually look at the figures and um, it's disappointing. But look, maybe we shouldn't be so down, okay? You know, cops, they are important. They are, we, we need them. This is what gets the governments talking. This is what, they are important. Um, but really, it's the companies and the people on the ground which are driving this in the UK 
and beyond. Um, it's, these, it's the people on the ground, the organizations who can really push the climate change agenda, um, almost in spite of or despite the bickering between governments. And that's what we should be both proud of and be looking at. And that's going to be our role and the, you know, and the listeners' role. And you can take the NHS, for example, and we're still planning, we're still targeting for net zero by 2045, which is brilliant. Um, we're the first organisation to do that. And other, other healthcare organisations around the world are starting to look into it too. Um, and this isn't an ambition which has come from any COP. This is internal. So... Don't be too downhearted, listeners. Keep fighting your battles and we can get there, all right? Don't worry if COP doesn't deliver everything you want. I think that's a really positive and important message. And it's certainly something that today's guest is really living and breathing. Mm. Um, so now's maybe a good point to introduce him. Do you want to tell us all about who you interviewed today, Barney? Yeah, sure. So um, I spoke to the awesome and absolutely lovely guy, um, Dr. Richard Hickson. And we talked about all things ocean. So if you haven't heard him speak already, he's been around. He's done sort of talks around the place. Um, he's published. He's, uh, he's quite well known in this area. His knowledge of the topic is outstanding and only rivaled by his incredible passion for saving the oceans. We start by looking at his journey to you know, how he got where he is today before delving into a whole wide variety of topics, the state of the ocean, the dangers they're facing, how real the risk is, what he has achieved and some of it's brilliant, um, what he, and his and the healthcare ocean, what they've achieved and to help and what you, you lovely bunch of climate zoners, what you can do to get involved and to help. And uh, he's a busy guy. So if you want to check out his credentials um, before taking his advice, here is just, uh, here is a list for you. So he is the co-founder of the amazing organisation Healthcare Ocean. He's the chair of County Durham and Darlington NHS Foundation Trust Sustainability Development Group. He's a member of Durham County's Climate Emergency Strategic Board. He's trustee of the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare. He's a member of the Intensive Care Society Sustainability Working Group and NHS England's Sustainable Supplier Forum. And he's a member of the UK National Committee for the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. There's a lot of um, accolades there, which are very long, and he sounds like a very sustainable guy, doesn't he? Um, <laughs> Definitely good credentials for this talk. Yeah, fantastic. Brilliant. Um, remember, listeners, if you're loving the podcast or you want to support us in any way, follow us on social media, follow the podcast, rate us wherever it's possible, share it with all your friends, um, and keep listening. Okay, great. Let's get on with the interview, shall we? Richard, thank you so much for joining us on Journal Spotting. It is an absolute pleasure to be talking to you this evening, late at night, after the kids are, well, my kids are to bed. Um, uh, but it's wonderful to have you on the show. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really good. Yeah, I'm really good. Uh, always long days, but uh, absolutely uh, great to finish off today, uh, which has been a good day with uh, with uh, this conversation. Fantastic. Listeners, um. We are going to cover a huge amount in this um, in this episode. We're going to you know, talk about uh, Richard's role, how he's got there. We're going to talk about the ocean. We're going to think, talk about things which are affecting the ocean, the role of the ocean, and we'll try and end up with some hints and tips about what you can do as individuals or as healthcare professionals to help the situation. So, uh, Richard, I mean, I, I love doing these interviews. I speak to people from all specialties and all walks of life, and I think it's fascinating. 
And uh, as well as the topic, I'm always really interested in their journey. Okay. So um, what I was going to ask you to start with, if it's all right, is how have you come to this position with, with all these different roles? What has driven you to get here? And as a second part to that, how um, how on earth do you manage to balance all these roles and life in one in one package? Uh, well, like you said, that's a that's a, that's a question that's a, an interview in its own right. Um, well, I've been uh, I've been graduated thirty years. I've been a consultant for twenty one years in critical care, um, and I always deep down I always had this really odd feeling that I took a, a slightly wrong direction in life. Um, so back when I was doing A levels, I initially wanted to be a, a veteran computer programmer. Um, and uh, my school was very supportive, so they said you're not clever enough to be a vet, and um, there's no future in computers. Um, so, <laughs> Fantastic advice there, both round. Okay, yeah, so really, really spot on. So I, I proved them wrong with four A's at A level, and then uh, stopped coding on the computer, and, and ended up being a medic. It was a toss up between that and marine biology, to be honest. Um, and the, the the reflection is is that probably marine biology would have been my my calling, but uh, anyway, I ended up as a medic. So um, you fairly, fairly usual progress through medicine, you know, nothing, nothing earth shattering, fairly streamlined career through to becoming a consultant and spent my time as a consultant doing my job, climbing the medical management ladder until I became deputy medical director and just suddenly kind of woke up one day about five years ago. Uh, whilst I was deputy medical director, and a couple of things crossed my mind. And one was, I wonder what the trust is doing about this sustainability issue in its broadest sense. So I had that question in the back of my mind. And at the same time, I decided to to do a little bit of digging around into my, my childhood passion, which was marine marine mammals and, and other animals. And um, it suddenly occurred to me that I'd, I'd, I'd lost track of the Yangtze River dolphin. And that was my favourite animal as a child. Okay, very specific there. Yeah, exactly. Well, I had a set of wildlife cards, like these hundred cards that you collected every week were magazines. And the Yangtze River Dolphin just always stood out because it was absolutely stunning. It's about two, two and a half metres long. And it was only in the, it was a river dolphin. It was only in the Yangtze River in China. Uh, Yangtze is the longest river to flow in any, you know, one single country. It just had, there was a lot about it that just caught my eye as a kind of seven-year-old. So I, I googled what you know the Yangtze River dolphin, and I found out it had become extinct in 2006. So Kiki, the last Yangtze River dolphin, which was in captivity, had died. And I suddenly thought, well, hold on, this that's 10 years ago, and in the time between I was seven years old and 10 years ago, when I was in my kind of early 40s, I thought, well, actually, I've contributed to the demise of the Yangtze River dolphin because I've become a, a big consumer, not just personally but professionally. And obviously consumption, a lot of it, a lot of the goods come from China. China has gone through this amazing growth period. It's dammed the river Yangtze and uh, for hydroelectric power, etc. And I suddenly felt very responsible uh, as an individual. So I, I started asking questions in my organization. And I said, what are we going to do about this climate crisis? What is the trust planning to do? And basically the answer was, we don't care and we don't know. And so I resigned from my job as deputy medical director. I resigned from everything that was non-clinical, went back to full-time clinical and set up the Trust Sustainability Group. So that's where it started. Wow. Honestly, that's, that's amazing. That's really, really interesting and very inspiring to be able to take that step to do something which you feel really passionate about. And I think um, too few doctors, 
me included, I suppose, have you know, taken that step, even though they know something's important to then go on. On the other hand, my favorite animal is probably the Amazonian dolphin, the pink dolphins out there. And I finally got to swim with them a few years ago. Um, And I was very jealous when one of the people we were with, um, it nibbled her foot. And I just felt, I just, I was just really jealous. I was like, why, why did it not choose my foot? But that is (laughs) another time and another story. Um, And what about now, uh, Richard? How do you, how do you balance all these, these roles? Any any tips for people who have lots and lots of interests and want to, you know, want to say yes to everything, but uh, are worried that it's going to take up their lives? Well, I, th- I think, again, I mean, um, they're saying yes to something you believe in. They're saying yes to something that you feel that you should be doing. So, um, again, I draw comparisons with my time in medical management where I, you know, again, I really felt sorry for the pun, but I really felt like a fish out of water. I really did. You know, it wasn't it wasn't my calling. It was one of those things that I'd kind of naturally progressed into. And then when I was there, I was doing an awful lot as a kind of entrepreneur within the trust, taking on projects and driving them forward. And they were important projects. But you know, were they what I wanted to be doing? And I think, again, on reflection, probably not. Now, when I've now I've moved into the environmental area, especially the oceanic area, um, yes, I say yes to a lot, but is it what I want to be doing? Absolutely, 100%. And therefore, you know, early mornings, late nights, filling every waking moment is actually, it's actually quite enjoyable Yes, you do have to balance it with an awful lot of demands, but because it is something that, you know, I, I now, when I think back to my, you know, um, my, my primary school years and, and perhaps, you know, around that time, you know, it, I should have probably been heading down this route anyway. So I'm now doing my perfect job just through a very odd route. That's marvellous and very inspiring. Wonderful. Well, I think our listeners, I'm sure they'll be fascinated and I am fascinated by your rules and things, but they'll they probably want to hear about the ocean side of things. So we maybe let's move on with the topic at hand. Okay. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to start the interview with some, just a few quick fire questions. So, you know, one or two, one or two words or very short answers um, to try and just shape what we're going to be talking about throughout the rest of the podcast, if that's okay. So you're feeling ready, Richard, your oh, yeah, fingers on the buzzers. Okay. Um, so from one to 10, how queer, yeah, there we go. I know the cheesy okay. questions. I feel, I started to feel like a game show host or something, but anyway, how crucial is it that we fix the health of the ocean if we are going to combat global climate change? Uh, at least a 10. 10. All right. Yeah, absolutely. If 10 is the most important, then, um, yeah, it's absolutely a 10. Perfect. You've got our listeners interest right now. That's excellent. Um, what would you say is the one most concerning cause of marine pollution? Um, that's actually quite an interesting one uh, because um, it's really difficult to pinpoint. Um, so I'm going to pick a really easy one, and that is car tyres. Brilliant. And we will discuss that. I'm sure that's fantastic. Um, this is a bit of a yes or no one. If we continue to focus on land rather than ocean strategies to combat climate change, can we reach our target rise of less than 1.5 degrees? No. What is, if you can say, this might be a bit difficult, but what is the one most important thing we can help to 
we can do to help this? Um, re- um, reduce pollution in its broadest sense. So um, I can elaborate upon that, but just to reinforce, carbon is important, but it is one pollutant. Brilliant. Okay. What do you think is the most important thing that a healthcare professional might be able to do to help this situation? Think about what they are consuming as a healthcare professional. So by that, I mean, every time that um, we use equipment or drugs, we should have a, a clear rationale for using those pieces of equipment and drugs. There is no such thing from a planetary sense of a benign intervention to a patient. Brilliant. Wonderful. And from one to ten, how hopeful are you that we are going to be able to correct the problems with the ocean? Oh, boy. Now, that is a tough one. Um, I'm, I'm going to say uh, I, I'm going to say ten because I have to believe it because um, for so many reasons. And I see during this environmental journey, and I know people are going to say, God, how can you say 10? But I I do see a sea change. I do see things happening that, for me, are massively hopeful, where perhaps a couple of years ago, I could see very little hope. That's brilliant. Okay, wonderful. And I think that shapes very nicely how we're going to progress. That's great. Okay, we're going to start big, and then we're going to narrow down a little bit. So um, what I wanted to start with is, could you tell us from a planetary perspective, what is the importance of our oceans? I think um, the, the, the easiest way to sum it up is, is in the very short short line, no blue, no green, no, no life. So simply the, the oceans give us life. Even if we turn back the clock billions of years, the first oxygen came from the oceans uh, and um, 500 million years before there was even any vegetation on land. So, you know, right from the very early days, the oceans gave the land life. And when oceans die, so does everything else. So it's as, it's as simple as that. Um, from the perspective of the slightly more kind of uh, detailed kind of thought, it's just you, you just have to kind of go through you know, what the oceans give us. You know, they give us vast amounts of protein for food. They give us uh, the oxygen we breathe. They sequester carbon dioxide. They give us a means of transportation. They keep areas of the world warm that would not be warm, including the UK. If you look at Newcastle, it's roughly on the same latitude as Cold Bay, Alaska, but thanks to the Gulf Stream, it's not as cold as Alaska. Um, it gives us medicines. It gives us sunscreen. It gives, you know, it it just gives us life. And when you poison the oceans, you are simply poisoning yourself and everyone around you. Brilliant, thank you. Um, to elaborate on a couple of things that'll be interesting um, about the role of the ocean, pharmaceuticals. I've heard this a few times. What um what pharmaceuticals do we get from the ocean? Oh, uh, antibiotics is the one that springs to mind, and some anti-cancer drugs as well. So there's uh, there's yeah. some there's some fairly big hitters that come out of the ocean. Um, I cannot remember for the life of me these the specific drugs, That's okay. um, or whether the, it is the compounds that lead to the formation of the drugs elsewhere. But uh, certainly, you know, there there are some very important drugs that come out of the oceans. 
And the idea of carbon capture, I've heard a few times and heard it discussed. Um, maybe you could explore that a little bit. Explain how does how is the, what is the ocean's role in in carbon capture? Well, what what is very elegant about the oceans is the fact that carbon capture is a job of the smallest organisms and the largest organisms. So all the way from from Prochlorococcus, which is the smallest known photosynthesizing organism on the planet, it was only discovered in 1986. Um, it's absolutely minute, but uh, every liter of seawater contains tens of millions of these Prochlorococcus. And they're photosynthesizers. So very simply put, when CO2 enters the ocean, these uh, these small organisms that sit right up in the photic zone, so it can absorb the CO2 and the sunlight, and they basically photosynthesize CO2 and remove it. Um, these small uh, Prochlorococcus, along with other uh, phytoplankton like diatoms and coccolithophores, they're present in a quantity of about a billion tons in the ocean at any one time. And they're the, they're the basis of the entire marine food chain. So these small phytoplankton are fed upon by zooplankton. Zooplankton at night are fed upon by things like copepods that migrate up from the mesopelagic zone, three, four hundred meters down. And as the, the copepods, the fish, the squid, they all follow up under the cover of night, they, they draw water up into the uh, surface zone, uh, into the photic zone. They feed and then in daytime, they, they, they literally descend again down into the mesopelagic zone. And that draws water down in vast, vast quantities. So it sucks all these dead organisms and their feces and the carbon that has been sequestered down into the deep waters that then can be sequestered through... Um, the ocean pump down and down and down into the sediments and uh, into the deep ocean um, layers. But what is amazing is the fact that the, the basis of the entire marine food chain um, and these copepods and slightly larger organisms, and even phytoplankton themselves, are, are consumed by the great whales. So you get these huge baleen filter feeders that are feeding on these tiny, tiny, tiny organisms. And they too are taking in vast amounts of carbon. And then these whales, they do this for, you know, the bowhead does this for 200 years. So pulling carbon out of the photic zone. And then when they die, they take it to the floor of the ocean. But then very elegantly, whilst they're feeding, they're also defecating in the photic zone, which puts lots of phosphorus and nitrates and uh, iron into the area where the phytoplankton are that causes the phytoplankton to multiply and bloom, therefore producing more photosynthesizing organisms. So you've got this beautiful positive feedback loop, more whales, more phytoplankton, more phytoplankton, more carbon sequestration, more what is called marine snow falling down into the bottom of the ocean, sequestering our carbon, and it just continues. Wonderful. That's fantastic. And that's so well explained. Thank you. I also, I was reading the uh, WHO's, um, what's called now, the Ocean and Ocean and Healthcare. And there's some, you know, some nice things, other things which they were talking about, things like people who live by the ocean, well, it is, it's good for the economy, it's good for people, good for um, social sort of, you know, um, ability because people go down to the ocean side um but and actually people who live by the ocean tend to be healthier and live longer and all these sorts of things so you can see why people are passionate about the ocean and why one is it it's essential for life but two it's it's good for our own health in so many ways and as we say we've, we've got to protect it in every way possible so i suppose we've talked about the benefits let's talk about the potential dangers which are facing the oceans 
and the global water systems, I suppose, too. And maybe you could go through some of those. Well, I think, I mean, I always sum it up as just simply pollution, because, you know, it is what we deliver to the ocean that shouldn't be there. So, uh, I mean, in, in its, um, you know, in a form that most people understand these days, we produce carbon dioxide, and uh, that is a pollutant. So it goes into the atmosphere, it then interfaces with the ocean. And when the ocean photosynthetic capacity is overwhelmed, it dissolves and it acidifies the ocean. And that one pollutant alone is responsible for the oceans acidifying at a rate that has never, ever been recorded when you go back through millions of years of, of records. Um, you know, we, we are now acidifying at a rate that hasn't been seen even before previous mass extinction events. So and that's due to the anthropogenic CO2 that we're producing. So, you know, that is one pollutant uh, that is leading to, you know, a major crisis in the ocean. But then you think, you know, well, we've got a, a population that's grown uh, tripled since the 1950s. So we need to feed that population. So what do we do? We have a lot of land that's turned over to agriculture and all the fertilizers and pesticides we put onto that land, it gets washed into rivers and that goes down to the oceans. And the pesticides will kill organisms directly and the phosphates and the nitrates will produce um, harmful algae blooms in, in the coasts. This is very different to the pelagic phytoplankton blooms that you get in the right places. These are coastal harmful al algae blooms that poison seafood and create hypoxic coastal regions that basically kill off sea life. So that's agriculture. We then have pharmaceuticals, which are particularly problematic in two areas. One is the area of manufacture that are often in lower resourced and socioeconomic countries where there is not particularly, not perhaps the same governance over water discharges that we have in, in other countries. So you get an awful lot of pharmaceutical and uh, um, molecular pollution originating in uh, these countries that, again, simply poisons uh, the marine life. And especially these, a lot of these chemicals are hydrophobic, so they don't like water. Uh, but they they latch onto microplastics, and the microplastics are the carriers to carry these 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 harmful chemicals into the base of the marine food chain that then poisons the uh, uh, marine life um, as it as it moves up through the um, the food chain. And when we look at higher developed countries, then we 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 also get uh, heavy pharmaceutical loads in rivers uh, because we use a lot of drugs. Um, so and you you can see various pockets of of kind of or types of drugs in certain areas of the world, such as antidepressants that aren't used so much in lower resource countries, but are used in higher resource countries. And they themselves can very much change the behavior of the marine species in, in rivers and coastal regions. We then have uh, wonderful things called sunscreens, which uh, we smear all over our bodies and we jump in the ocean. And a lot of these have got chemicals in such as oxybenzone, um, which we produce vast amounts of every year to protect ourselves from skin cancer. But it is highly, highly toxic to uh, marine life. We then have things like PFAS and PFOS and all these other acronyms, which are used as flame retardants in waterproofing on our PPE. And um, if we then dispose of those, and uh, even if we incinerate them, uh, we can end up with these chemicals in the environment. Um, and uh, uh, these, again, are highly toxic. And they are known as forever chemicals because they just do not degrade. 
And these are all concentrating in, in uh, freshwater and in uh, rivers and coastal regions and, and seawater. So the list goes on and on and on about the pollutants that we are putting into the oceans. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's scary. And, and when you start to scratch the surface, you just realise just how much there is and where it's all going. And as you say, all of it eventually goes to the ocean. A couple of little things, well, things to sort of to touch on. Um, one is a bit of non non-climate share. So eutrophication is that's when you get all the the, the phosphorus and the nitrates, which and, you, and that in sort of blooms the algae, which is poisonous to the water. Yep. Okay, the microplastics. Can you talk a little bit about there? What is there certain types of plastics which are causing the biggest problem? What do we know about what effect they're having? This is so. This is a great question, actually, uh, Barney, uh, because I've been, I've been asking forever for for a hierarchy in plastics from good to bad. So from from chemical engineers to all sorts of companies, I've kind of wanted people to tell me what's a good plastic and what's a bad plastic. And um, I think I think the consensus really is, is a, is a good plastic is one that is made into something that remains that something forever. Um, but that is the minority of plastics. And a bad plastic is one that is used once and then disposed of in by whatever means. So it's not the material as such. It is it is what the plastic is used for. Now, microplastics. Um, they're a, a, you know, they're an interesting kind of concept. You know, big plastics get broken down into smaller and smaller plastics. Even when we recycle them, we chop them up into smaller plastics, and eventually they become uh, so small and so um, dissimilar to the original product in molecular terms that you can no longer recycle them. So they all have a very limited kind of lifespan, even with recycling. And as they get smaller and smaller, they just simply form these these microplastics, which I, I think it's less than five millimeters for a microplastic. And these just form a, a suspension in the oceans and they're fed upon, you know, the smallest organisms like zooplankton think they're food and the, chem- the nasty chemicals, the forever chemicals latch onto the microplastics. They get f- fed upon by the zooplankton and it kills them. So the zooplankton are then taken out of the system. And when you when you disrupt any trophic zone in the ocean and cause an imbalance, then you get uh, death in other trophic levels. So it's just an, an escalation of the death of these small organisms, uh, in addition to all the other chemicals and things that, and all the other pollution that we're putting into the ocean. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I suppose a, a sort of an ana- analogy would just be for people who are trying to get their head around it is is sand. You know, we have you have rock, you have carbon, you have all these sorts of things mm. which gets broken down into smaller and smaller pieces until it's finely fine sand. And the same sort of thing happens with the plastic; it's broken down, broken down into this very fine material which we wouldn't we can barely see and yet is causing widespread um damage and destruction okay um you you mentioned about car tires i've heard you mention that before um and how a lot of the sort of the microplastics and pollution comes from that um how, how much do we know about that and what do you think about it well, when I was um, my, I took my daughter's car in for a couple of new tyres and I decided whilst I waited, I'd, I'd grill the guy in the garage about it. And he was really open, actually. He was, he was really knowledgeable. He's not the only person I've, I've learned about tyres from in this journey, <laughs> by the way. But uh, um, but he was what he said was the 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 tyre industry have known about um, microplastics and car tyres for quite some time. The, the, the process of, of creating tyres is quite a permanent one. The vulcanisation means that you can never really recycle a tyre, apparently. And this is something I'm just learning about. So it's a kind of forever process. But all the artificial uh, chemicals and plastics and synthetic rubbers that go into the tyres 
as you drive your car, they simply, um, because of the friction generated to create the grip, they, um, uh, they, they, they just form tiny, tiny little microplastics that, that go into the atmosphere and we breathe them in or they stay on the road and they get washed off with rainwater straight into the storm drains. And um, this water that goes into the storm drains is not treated. It goes straight into the rivers. Um, and I can see that where I live in North Yorkshire, I can literally see the drains and I can see them draining into the river that, you know, I, I spend some time cleaning out. And they then get washed straight to the, the ocean. And I've, I, I've heard a couple of, uh, I've read a couple of papers, one that says it is, they are probably the second most common source of ocean microplastics. And another one that said that they could be the first highest source of ocean microplastics. The other one being the breakdown of macroplastics. So if you have macro waste, it breaks down. It's, it's a, it's a you know, coin flip, whether it's tires sure. or macroplastics. But we have such a lot of vehicles on the roads. We have such competitiveness within the tire industry. And then we have this really odd beast come onto the market called electric vehicles. And in order for electric vehicles to, to get the most miles out of their uh, batteries, the tire compounds have been um, created to, to minimize rolling resistance. But they haven't been, they still, um, they, they still shed microplastics. And because of the increased weight of the electric vehicles, because of the heavy batteries, they possibly shed more microplastics than fossil fuel counterparts. So this is something that I'm only just beginning to explore. But if that's the case, then when we say zero emission vehicles, what we're saying is zero tailpipe emissions. We're not saying zero emissions because we still have emissions from tires and also from brake dust, which yeah. again... Um, uh, aerosols into the air and gets washed down storm drains so it's just something that we need to be mindful of when we're looking for solutions the solution is not just co2 air and global warming so the, you know the solutions have to address other forms of pollution as well such as such as um, um, tires yeah it is something from the respiratory perspective they are they are looking at and they keep seeing it they look down they see these little microplastics and you know, when they do biopsies and things and we're not quite sure we see them all get the travel all around the body um, as they get into the bloodstream and it's um it's uh, something in progress and i'm sure we're going to find out more about it over the next few years yeah definitely i, I found a an abstract i think it was an abstract for a poster by you and i'm afraid i can't remember who it was for now but it had a, a very um interesting graph about the ph of the ocean and this idea of a a tipping point which doesn't seem too far away with it after which all marine life will perish. Um, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on that and how, how how realistic is that prospect that we will get to this pH? Well, so, well, certainly, you know, when you go back through a lot of the older work and the the kind of exponential decline in oceanic pH, uh, I mean, it's um, hydrogen concentration has increased by thirty three percent in one hundred and fifty years. That's faster than, as I said, you know, ever recorded before in you know um in records that we can obtain through through sampling um but um i think the most interesting paper is through the GOES foundation which is uh, an organization it's the global oceanic environmental survey and they what um what they've done is predicted the the present level of oceanic ph decrease on an SSP 5 to 8.5 pathway, which is what we're on at the moment. This is the high emissions pathway or the very high emissions pathway, which we remain on despite all the pledges, despite all the actions, 
we are on the SSP 5 to 8.5. That's it. So if we look at that in terms of global warming, then we get to 4 degrees C at um, 2085. Now, I think in anyone's book, 4 degrees C is pretty much the end of civilization. So we're talking, what, just over 60 years away. Because it's you can't adapt to 4 degrees C. That is breakdown of society, civilizations as we know it. What the Ghost Foundation have predicted, however, is that when we hit a pH of 7.95, then we, we basically get to a tipping point for carbonate-based life forms in the ocean. So they will not be able to exist as they are because they will simply start dissolving and they won't be able to form their carbonate shells. And uh, this includes cocolithophores and diatoms that are carbonate-based phytoplankton. And um, especially with the cocolithophores, this is, this is especially worrying because not only do we lose a whole class of um, phytoplankton, which is a photosynthesizer, um, but also cocolithophores produce a chemical called dimethyl sulfide, which aerosols from the surface of the ocean, from the um, surface uh, microlayer, and it forms the, the nuclei of clouds. So as we lose cocolithophores, we actually reduce cloud formation, which protects the Earth from the um, protects the, the Earth from from the sun's rays, and therefore even more warming. So these are especially critical. And if we lose the cocolithophores, then we get uh, an ecological void, and the prediction is that void will simply be filled with uh, dinoflagellates and other organisms that will produce toxins that will no longer be restricted to the ocean because the surface microlayer becomes um, um, uh, it, uh, it, it's no longer it's no longer got its integrity and therefore those toxins will be released into the atmosphere and then eventually poison the land so that it and, and that pH is 7.95 that tipping point for carbonate based life forms is 2045 so that is 40 years sooner than that worrying you know, four degrees, I mean, two degrees is worrying enough. I mean, four degrees is utterly terrifying. So potentially 2045, if we stay on an SSP 5 to 8.5. And that is why oceans are important, because, you know, a lot of this is, I mean, I've got to emphasize here, Barney, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty in this. None of us are experts. None of us have lived through a mass extinction event. We are all trying to make sense of this rapidly changing world around us. And people are trying to make predictions. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not a scientist in this area. You know, I, I analyze what is out there and I try and turn it into a form of communication that then resonates with human healthcare and drives actions. But when I look at the work, you know, you look at the credibility of the work and some things just catch your eye and they just scare you. And the one thing that I keep seeing is that ocean changes. Let's forget the years for a second and the decades. Ocean changes are happening very fast and could become a more pressing issue than the actual temperature of the um, uh, than the landmass that we're living on. So it's that's why it's that's why it's just yeah. so utterly worrying, and why we we certainly move to form healthcare ocean. It's very scary, isn't it? Let's face it. And actually, as humans, one thing which is um, generally happens is when we're scared, we act. You just need enough people to be scared, and we need to get the word out there to enough people, so enough people are scared, so that we can act. 
So 7.95, just remind me, what are we at now? Can you give us, do you know roughly what we are? 8.05, if I remember yeah, uh, okay. off the top of my head. A- around yeah. that, okay. Yeah, yeah, just so, over it, yeah. So yeah, it's and it's not far to go for me, you know, from that perspective. Okay. One thing, a couple of things we haven't spoke about dangers. Um, I wonder if you could touch on the uh, idea of overfishing um, and is that as worrying as everything else or is actually, is that something which yes fine we should be fishing less but perhaps is less of a worry compared to the ph and things like that i I think it's all interrelated barney i think it's um you know you when you when you look at socioeconomic and earth system trends they they all have changed exponentially in the last 70 years you know the last 70 years it's got this affectionate name of the great acceleration you know it's when human population has tripled and we become these these expert consumers and so we just consume everything don't we and that includes fish and I, I think with fishing, um, it's not the fact we're fishing, it's the way that we're fishing. And it's the destructive nature of the, the, the industrial scale shipping, uh, fishing that we're doing at the moment. Um, and it's as much the bycatch as the fish themselves, because there's a lot that is caught that is not used. But when you do look at uh, even the absolute amount of fish that are being pulled out of the ocean, it is decreasing now. It is not exponentially rising because the oceans are slowly running out of fish. They just haven't got time to restore their fish stocks. So, yes, I think independently of everything else, it is of concern. Brilliant. And people can watch Seaspiracy to get a bit more of that. Um, although yeah. it is it is Netflix. So there is a, you know, and it's very sort of, it, gave, it gives a very one-sided argument, but makes some very yes, good points. Very so. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you'll be dying to talk about the dangers of uh, and the effects of shipping. So this is a big thing for healthcare ocean, isn't it? Well, I, th- I think the first thing to say about shipping, when I, when I first started looking at shipping, I, I decided very rapidly that they were, you know, this this was all just, you know, it was all negative. It was it was awful. You know, shipping was bad. And then you look into it a little bit more and actually start thinking about it. And ships are actually an amazing force for good. Um, the first container ship sailed, I think it was 1956. Um, and it, it has grown just beyond anyone's ex- expectations on the numbers of ships on the oceans and the number of trips that they they undertake and we have to bear in mind that ships they deliver food to billions they deliver medicines they create economies all around the world in the furthest reaches of the world that would not have economies without the global village and the shipping industry so i think we always have to start with you know shipping is is yes it's got baggage but it's a force for good it's just we have to do better with it. So ships themselves, I mean, these things are huge. They're dirty. They're noisy. They are indiscriminate in where they plough through, um, as in they can plough through particularly sensitive sea areas, causing all sorts of damage to ecosystems and direct damage to, to larger cetaceans, whales and dolphins, etc. And they they are powered by the dirtiest of fuels, heavy fuel oil, which is very high in sulfur and other impurities and black carbon particulate matters, uh, particulate matter. And it really is the sludge at the bottom of the barrel that, that that powers these ships, but for good reasons because this heavy fuel oil has an enormous energy content per mil that you just do not find anywhere else. So for international or interna- intercontinental travel. You know, it's extremely efficient way to get things around the planet. It's very makes it very cheap, and actually, when you compare it with with um, aviation, it's actually also very clean. 
So aviation is worse than shipping, but shipping is still bad. And because shipping is responsible for the movement of 90% of all our goods around the planet, 12 and a half billion tonnes of goods um, uh, every single year, industries worth, you know, 15 trillion or something in the, in the, in the, the amount of goods shipped around. And it's a tonne and a half of, of products per head of population on the planet. You know, it really is moving a lot of stuff. There's just no other way to do this. Um, and unfortunately, it's predicted that, you know, the shipping industry, um, and I say unfortunately, but, you know, you have to take that in context. It's, it's just going to keep growing because our human population is growing and growing and growing. So it's, there's a lot of negatives, the heavy fuel oil being one, the noise being another. These are very noisy machines, um, mainly from uh, air cavitation from the propellers. Um, they, the noise impacts upon species all the way down from, from zooplankton right up to the great whales who can't navigate, who can't feed, who can't find their, 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 their mates, that can't you know, bring up their young effectively and take them to feeding grounds. Um, they transfer non, non-invasive species, um, sorry, non-indigenous species <laughs> around the world in ship ballast water, which is used to stabilize the ships when they're partially full. And this can cause ecosystem destruction. Um, so there's a lot of negatives with the ships themselves. And we just have to do better because these ships are bringing in our healthcare goods. We are an island nation and 80% of our NHS goods coming on these ships. But they are causing harm to an ecosystem that ultimately will catch up and cause human harm. So we've got a lot to do in engaging with the shipping industry and getting them to drive change and our suppliers who who procure these ships to drive change because otherwise we are just causing harm somewhere else thank you thanks for summarizing that's really helpful and i think it's really useful to get our our head around like like everything there is no black and white there is no this is evil and this is good um and, and we've got to try and find the best way and actually efficient shipping seems like one of the answers or one of the techniques um before we go on to the solutions, the solutions behind some of these. Um, I thought we should probably just go over a little bit some of the areas how it affects our health. Now we've talked a bit about um, you know, microplastics and you know, how it goes in the food chain and that sort of thing. I was interested in. We talked about, um, say, the pharmaceuticals, and I was what I was wondering about the antimicrobial resistance. Is there is there good evidence that there is, say, human antimicrobial resistance caused by um, you know, antibiotics in the in the waterways in the ocean, or is that is this still a, a theory, or or is it just in the marine life? I think um, it is mainly at the moment. I don't think it's ever been proven that we got human antimicrobial resistance from from um, uh, antibiotic contamination of you know, riverines and coastal regions. And I don't think that we've gone that far with the science as far as I'm aware. There's other people who know a lot more about this than me. And, you know, I I lean upon them heavily for advice in these kind of areas. What there is, you know, there is definite evidence of antimicrobial resistance within the um, uh, river and marine systems. So within other species. And, you know, the other things that we get with, uh, which are, you know, very much proven within um, uh, species is fish feminization when they're exposed to endocrine disruptors, hormone uh, oral contraceptive pills. And also um, some uh, there's been some evidence showing that some fish species become uh, take less evasive action 
um, when exposed to prey if they are exposed to antidepressants in their environment. So, you know, these are the three areas that certainly I am aware of, and I'm sure there's lots more if, again, you know, understanding every pharmaceutical and its impact on, on multiple species is going to be a different, a difficult bit of science. Yeah, uh, and it's a really interesting area. And as you say, very complicated. Yeah. Um, right, let's uh, start to think about some solutions. And I know you, you mentioned actually earlier on before we got started that you, you had some good news today. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about that and what, what you guys have been achieving? Yeah, well, for, for about, well, for several months now, we've been very aware, or actually since COP26 last, last year, we became very aware of this concept of green corridors. And green corridors are, an, um, uh, they are a concept where you will have certain ports designated at either side of a uh, two continents. And the, 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 the routes between those ports would be designated as green corridors. So the reason why it obviously involves the ports is when these ships get to port, they have to be, they have to be bunkered, they have to be filled up with fuel. And so you've got to have the facility to have the fuels powering the ships that can also, um, the ships can also be refueled at both ends. So it's quite a complicated um, pathway to create. But these, this concept of green corridors was, was starting to grow at COP26. There was the Clyde Bank Declaration, I think uh, 15, no, 15 or 20 companies signed up to it, countries signed up to it. But then just out of the kind of, you know, um, almost like, you know, uh, the, the sidelines came the, came the Aspen Institute and they came up with this idea of COZEV, which is cargo owners for zero emission vessels and an ambition statement. And to sign the ambition statement costs nothing. And it wasn't a commitment, it was an ambition. But what the ambition does is it shows a demand for zero emission vessels. So it shows that people are saying, we want by 2040 to have zero emission ships on the oceans. So their first round of signatories included companies like Amazon, Unilever, Ikea, Michelin, you know, big, big companies. But what they didn't have um, and this was also the case in the UN Global Compacts. They didn't have any healthcare suppliers. So I went to Greener NHS and I chatted to Nick Watts about it. And I said, why, why don't we just go big on this? Let's get the NHS to sign up to COZEV. And Nick very rightly turned around and said, well, we're not really a cargo owner. But tell you what, why don't you and, you and us, being Greener NHS, let's make some approaches to some companies and let's see where we get with this big suppliers. So I started out reaching to companies that I had good relationships with, that I was spending time speaking to their employees over oceanic health. And um, uh, one of them was Philips Healthcare. Um, and after uh, a while of negotiation, presentations um, and uh, meetings of their, their board, etc., they decided to become a signatory of COZEV for all the reasons that you know we've gone over in, in, insofar as you know they have to be responsible for that step of their logistics chain um, and to not only decarbonize but ultimately to become very uh, you know ships that are lower noise etc but the first step is the fuels the first step is to get these damn ships off heavy fuel oil go to distillate oils or go to e-methanol or something else something else that just reduces that co2 emissions of shipping which globally is about you know, a billion tons a year. And so Philips Healthcare at New York Climate Week this week and COZEV announced that Philips have become their first healthcare supplier to sign COZEV. And we are hopefully going to utilize that to start the dominoes toppling 
So we have our first healthcare supplier that supplies equipment. Let's get our first pharmaceutical, then get our second, our third, our fourth, our eighth, our 16th. And let's get healthcare to join this movement, this ambition statement to say, we cannot have our goods delivered on ships that cause excessive harm when there is an alternative. And let's use the voice of healthcare to drive that change. Not only that, let's figure out how to do this from an economic perspective. E-methanol ships will be higher cost than a heavy fuel oil ship in the first instance. But if we can aggregate the demand for the goods alongside these companies like Amazon, we will be able to negotiate down these prices because you create this demand aggregation. And by planning your procurement, you'll be able to drive down the price to make it competitive. There will then be an economic model as well as a healthcare and an ocean model in which to drive the change within the shipping industry. That's wonderful. Congratulations. That's, uh, that's brilliant. And what an achievement. And um, one step, isn't it? It's one big step, yeah. but it's one step in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. And I, th- I think for me, what was most important about today was it showed that when you explained it and companies got it, then they would take action. And so this has very much been how healthcare, how we as healthcare workers have been working. We explain everything in terms of health um, and making it personal. You know, if you if you make it, you know, we saw what COVID did, you know, it made it very personal, didn't it, in COVID? You know, and that was one virus and we've got a hell of a more, yeah. lot more to contend with with climate change. So when you make it personal, people do act. And actually, if, if you see them glazing over on the health bit, well, you can always come back to them, you know, and work on the economic side. Because we have this wonderful thing within um, NHS England, which is developing, which is the Evergreen Framework. So these suppliers that engage with these initiatives will score more highly on the framework and be more attractive as a supplier. So actually, once we start aligning the way that we procure, not just with finance, but with environment and society, then actually you know, we will find these companies being rewarded in the long term. That's brilliant. And what a system, I think. And the NHS is... It's being fantastic with this, with its plans to uh, be carbon neutral, and um, it, it is it's leading the world. And I think other healthcare organisations after tw- COP twenty six are starting to follow suit. It's um it's taken some time, but healthcare mm. is realising its its impact. And actually, well, we're all going to be very 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 busy if we don't get working very yes. soon on it. Um, yeah, congratulations again. I think that's brilliant. You're doing some really fantastic fantastic work. I was interested in this um, because when you when you speak, it seems so obvious. It seems so clear. Whenever you hear it, it seems so so clear and so obvious. Um, the problem with the ocean. I was wondering why, why do you think these issues are are not at the forefront of climate change discussions? Um, why are they not up there, first or second on the list? Well, I think I, I, I would start with out of sight, out of mind. Um, we we stand on the land, we breathe the air. That's what most of us see and feel every day. Um, I think the oceans, you know, you've already touched upon how wonderful they are from a kind of coastal perspective and the health and well-being benefits, etc. But although even in countries like Australia, where, you know, most people live, you know, around the, the edge of Australia and things, you know, they won't see the ocean every day and few of them will actually jump in it. So I think there's a little bit of that. Number one, we're a land based species. And so we we identify more with land and atmosphere. If you if you read Mike Berners-Lee's book, uh, There's No Planet B, the second edition, he touches upon ocean acidification, but it only gets one page in the whole book. And he basically says, we've, we've got a limited bandwidth that's been taken up with CO2 and global warming. And if we actually throw in ocean acidification as well, 
then we're, we're not going to be able to cope with this. Um, now, we take a slight, obviously take a slightly different stance and we kind of say, well, we kind of have to bring this into uh, our thought processes, our strategies, because otherwise it will catch us out. Um, and also, very when you look at carbon sequestration, you know, um, you know, roughly we produce about nine gigatons of carbon every year. That's carbon, not CO2. You know, roughly a third to atmosphere, a third to land, a third to ocean. If we lose that sequestration capacity, then it makes the job of net zero so much harder, if not impossible. So we need every tree, we need every phytoplankton, we need every whale, we need these natural systems to be healthy. Because when you look at the alternatives, e.g. tech, Climeworks and all these things, you know, they're, they're not going to they're not going to save us. You know, they're scratching the surface. Um, I think Climeworks at maximum capacity, about a gigaton a year of CO2. Uh, that leaves, you know, 37 gigaton to either reduce the emissions or let natural systems absorb. And, and so we're going to be way off. So I think... I think we just, yeah, over the years, we've just kind of marginalized the oceans, mainly because we've just we've just not realized perhaps what was happening, what the potential was. I think the academia was out there. I think the science is good. I just think it's never really reached mainstream and the media haven't picked up upon it. Yeah, it's interesting. And um, I think <laughs> just thinking about watching Frozen Planet 2 at the moment, Richard, yeah. and it's, uh, you know, these actually, it's amazing. These sorts of things are what gets the public attention. And of course, when you get the public attention, you get the media attention. And, and actually, even the healthcare professionals, we, uh, we're just the public, generally speaking. And we often don't hear about these things until we hear about it through these streams. And suddenly it sparks an interest. And when you have interest and you're a bit scared, again, hopefully that, that is cause for action. Which actually brings me nicely on to, I was going to ask you, for people listening, junior doctors, healthcare professionals, um, you've, you've mentioned a little bit before, but what what can we be doing? What should we be doing? Um, because people would have different skills, be different roles, and they'll be wondering, well, this sounds really important, um, but you know, I still need to wear my PPE, and I still, I've only got one place to put it, and it's in the bin. So what can we be doing? I think um, the one thing that I've really learned recently is understanding waste streams because waste waste is one thing, pollution is another. So a, a product is good whilst it's in use. When it's no longer in use or the packaging is, is, is pulled off, it becomes waste and that waste has to be processed. And as medical staff and other healthcare professionals, I think we have to understand waste. We, we diligently put our waste into clear bags, black bags, tiger bags, orange bags, all these sorts of things. But do we really understand where those bags go and what happens to them and what the impact of that is? And I, th- I think we should all, as, as healthcare professionals, be understanding those waste streams really, really well, because the bulk of what we put in those bags through various waste, shape and means goes to incineration. When you realize that pretty much everything's incinerated, including the recyclables, because often what we put in the recycling bags is not recycled. And I've found out recently that, you know, recycling is quite a uh, it's, it's quite um, hit and miss, shall we say, depending on where you are in the country. And if if uh, and, and um, you know, I was very disappointed to find out that some of the recycl- recyclables were being incinerated um, but you've got you, once you realize that everything's going up in smoke and that smoke out of an incinerator, yes, it's processed, but there are still chemicals within that. Then you start thinking about your consumption and you start thinking about medicine 
as not just being first do no harm to the patient in front of you, but you have to extend that to first do no harm to, to patients, other societies, other communities and the planet. Um, and we, we, we have to start having this shift in mindset over what we are trying to do in medicine and what we are trying to achieve, because it's no longer good enough to say, you know, I will do everything for this patient in front of me if I cause harm elsewhere. We have to understand that. We have to understand what we are doing uh, upstream of the patient right in front of us. That's very difficult, um, but I think it is going to be necessary because again, what's the alternative? The alternative is that we ignore the bigger picture we carry on saying, first do no harm. That means the patient in front of us at all costs. But if we kill the planet, then we just kill billions. So, you know, it doesn't work. We've got to have, you know, this way of understanding what we're doing as healthcare professionals and being very critical in what we're doing, how we're procuring goods, asking the right questions and changing what we can. The other thing I, I think that as healthcare professionals we can do is to start uh, challenging our organisations and the um, the industries that align to them over what we do with our liquid waste. Because, you know, we produce in my organisation 60 tonnes of macro waste every month. It costs us about 20,000 to process that. But we produce 4,000 tonnes of liquid waste. So massively more than the solid waste. But that liquid waste costs us £4,000 to deal with. So even though it's masses more, 180 times more, it costs us a fraction. It costs us a quarter or a fifth of what our macro waste takes to, to, to process. And the reason being is we don't process it. We, we send it to the sewage treatment works and it gets diluted and chucked into the river. And so we have to start asking some very serious questions about where our liquid waste goes. That's all the patient urine and everything that's liquid and doesn't go into a bag and goes down the floor sinks and in, th in through the macerators. We have to start asking those questions. We have to start understanding where that waste goes and 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 actually bringing those industries like the sewage treatment industry into discussions when we're talking about net zero in our organizations because net zero is not just about emissions it's about sequestration you can't get to net zero without effective planetary sequestration of carbon and you can't get to that without natural systems so they're the kind of big picture things and they're the kind of big scary things i think but from the from individual actions um that i think every one of us can take Number one is, 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 for me, is always travel. Cars, you know, we, a lot of people feel once they've bought an electric car, they've done their bit. Now, that's clearly not true. Zero tailpipe emissions are not zero emissions. So we've got to look at how we travel. We've got to engage with public transport. We've got to get on our bikes. We've got to stop driving and reduce our, 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 um, our miles, not just our fossil fuel miles, but our miles. And when we do do miles, we've got to car share. You know, we've got to reduce that, 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 um, pollution that comes off our tires and our brake dust. I think as wealthy individuals, which we are in planetary sense, we've got to reduce our consumption. I think we've got to reduce our use of the buy it now button as much as possible. We've got to buy once, we've got to keep it for as long as we possibly can. And that goes for cars too. You know, some people get in this real angst, you know, they go, you know, I've got this old diesel car, I must buy an electric vehicle, but this Tesla, sorry, other makes are available, costs tens of thousands of pounds. So I'll buy it on the lease hire scheme. And then every three years you get a new one. And that is resource extraction and consumption. So I think, and again, maybe someone's going to tell me differently on this, but I think the best thing you can do is buy a car and keep it until it falls to bits.
you know, so buy once, keep it for as long as you can. Don't be tempted to keep trading it in and extracting more resource. Just drive it, drive it, drive it. And someone always comes up at this point and says, well, my car's an old diesel and it produces lots of CO2. Surely I should buy an EV rather than drive it into the ground. I'm not sure if that science, the science is that clear on that. But my gut feeling is that we should probably, whatever we're driving, we should keep for as long as possible. Chemicals is another one. The easy one is sunscreens. You know, if you lather yourself in sunscreen, make sure it's one that's not going to kill the ocean. <clears throat> so there's some great sunscreens out there like Athic Suve, uh, which is available. It's extremely effective. I mean, I have the sort of skin that turns from blue to white in sun and then goes, to, you know, red. And I've used it all summer and it's fantastic. And it is proven reef and aquatic um, animal safe. What was that name again? Sorry, Richard. Athic Suve. Athic Suve. Okay, we'll put it in the show notes where I'll find a link for it. Yeah, it's A-E-T-H-I-C. Is okay. the, uh, and there are others available, but that's the only one I've tested. And, sure. you know, a, a little bit like you, Barney, I've got, I've, you know, my yeah, top of my Seriously. got to be careful. Protection. Seriously needs protection. I'm a hat man. I wear hats all yeah. the time. Even study, anyway. Really <laughs> both, that and bandanas. Uh, but I'm getting too old for bandanas, I think. Um, the, the chemicals, the other, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, the other one is holidays. And by holidays, I kind of think uh, cruising. Um, yeah, I would I would seriously consider not cruising as a, as a, as a holiday because these, these boats are highly polluting. They, they put all their pollutants straight out into these beautiful places that they visit. Heavy fuel oils power them. So be very careful about how you holiday, how you get there, where you go. What you do when you're there, you know, it's not unheard of for, you know, dolphins and porpoises to be hit by jet skis. Um, and there's a hideous video of a dolphin uh, zooming around a bay blind because uh, a jet ski has taken the front of its face off. So let's be really mindful about what we're doing when we're abroad. There's also some really great charities out there that will um, that are really focused on ocean health. And they're small charities. They're really up against the big boys, but these are really streamlined operations. I'll name one, Whale and Dolphin Conservation, fantastic group, amazing charity. Uh, and the, the final one is, is, is litter pick. Um, if you want to make yourself feel better, go out and litter pick because every piece of rubbish that you move out of the environment, especially if it's near a river, is and put it in, into municipal waste. That's a good thing. You know, no, it's not perfect. We shouldn't have the waste in the first place. But if you have got waste, put it in the municipal waste rather than having it float down to the ocean. So, and that's what I do if I get really down. I just go out and pick up a couple of bags of litter, and then you just know you've you've kind of done something good that you can you can tweet about later on in the in the day. I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be evidence. There's evidence that walking in nature improves your is improves your mood. I think it's equivalent to antidepressants, something like that. Um, and then doing a good deed, something you feel content about. I can see how that would be mindful and generally very good for your mental health. So I think that's a lovely. A lovely idea of uh, something positive to do, which will be good for you. That's brilliant. Uh, just one thing about um, diet. You know, we've, we've, I've, I had a list of you know, things I was going to ask you. You've covered all of them. Apart from just, I wondered if you had a, a view on diet and whether we should be, you know, not eating things or eating a more of something. Um, I think, um, I mean, obviously ruminators always get a really bad deal. So cows and, and sheep um, and uh, because of the methane. Um, I think having looked at this quite superficially, because food's quite a tough one, um, I think my gut feeling is beef is, you know, on a global level is just getting ridiculous, has got ridiculous. I mean, humans and their livestock now comprise 96% of mammalian biomass. 
<coughs> and a lot of that livestock is beef. And the beef create, creates methane, methane. It's conversion of, you know, um, sunlight to crops, to feed, to fuel for the human body is very low. It is very land intensive. And if we converted all the land that we're using to feed beef herds into, feed, you know, uh, crops to feed humans, then we wouldn't have the kind of food crisis that we're heading into. So I, I think my gut feeling is beef is a bad one. Um, and there's nothing that I've read that kind of convinces me otherwise. Um, people always ask about fish. I think fish will probably be fine one day. Um, but I think we have to stop the practices that we're doing at the moment with respects to the industrial level of fishing. And of course, you know, like most, uh, uh, most of us uh, or most of the people I talk to have gone to a largely plant based diet, um, which absolutely is um, the way forward so that meat doesn't become the, the, the kind of main feature of the plate. It is something that, that perhaps, you know, you, you, you reduce the frequency of it in your household for, for you and your family. And I, I think that's a very positive way forward. That's wonderful. Uh, and lots of fantastic advice. Richard, thank you. Thank you so much. I think we've covered a huge amount and <laughs> we've been chatting a while and um, there's so much food for thought and some really inspirational ideas. Um, I was, I suppose you've, uh, you mentioned at the beginning that you were 10 out of 10 hopeful. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just wanted to, I suppose, end on that, on, on your enthusiasm and positivity. And if you could imagine your best case scenario of things going right bit by bit, what would, what would it look like in your sort of, in your perfect idea of things going right over the next few years if you're able to put a timeline on it that'd be brilliant but if not don't worry the the, the thing that um i always come back to barney is uh, it's a line that i heard um from the great man himself sir david which <clears throat> said you know phytoplankton are, are our best ally in combating climate change so that was um the perfect planet episode four i think it was released at the beginning of 2021 and i never heard anyone say that out loud i had thought it I had read papers, I had gone through the science as much as I could, and all I could think was phytoplankton's one billion tons of biomass is replaced every eight days. So one billion tons turns over, and all the time it's turning over, it's photosynthesizing. And when we look at the land, it takes 10 years for the land-based biomass to do that. So we've got one week versus 10 years. So I give the future kind of 10 out of 10, because in the next few years, what we're going to do is we are going to detoxify our oceans. And when I say that, that's going to be CO2. It's going to be other greenhouse gases that may impact upon the oceans. It's going to be the macro and molecular pollutants um, that we've discussed. It is going to be the noise. It is going to be the building, the seismic testing. It is going to be absolutely everything. And we're going to reduce that. And in reducing that and creating vast marine protected areas, we are going to and and um, protecting the particularly sensitive sea areas where there's migratory routes for the great whales, etc., that are so critical. They're such amazing ecosystem engineers that we are going to have an ocean where the whale numbers are growing, where the pollution is less, the phytoplankton are blooming. And that is going to set up a positive feedback loop that will help sequester carbon from the atmosphere. So that will then dovetail with our emission reduction strategies and that will 
Um, well, I believe that is the only way we will get to net zero, but with the healthy oceans and this amazing ability to sequester carbon. I mean, the oceans sequester 16 times more carbon than the land, 50 times more than the atmosphere. I mean, they're phenomenal sinks for carbon when they're healthy. That, you know, in a few years' time, would have sorted out the emissions to a point where the sequestration works, that we restore nature to where it was, and these natural systems kick back in and we can actually start living with nature rather than treating it as um, a resource just for us to, to, to propagate the human race. Richard, thank you. Thank you again. That's been a brilliant talk. So useful. And uh, I'll let you get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Barney. Much appreciated. Thanks for the invite. So there we go. That was our, my interview with Dr. Richard Hickson. Um, and I, as you can see, I was very enthusiastic talking to him. It was a great, it felt like a really nice conversation with, uh, um, you know, somebody who was just so good at taking these complex topics and making them easy to understand. And his enthusiasm and positivity really rang through as well. Um, it was really nice to hear about how he's managing to fuse his sort of childhood love of yeah. marine biology and this sort of alternative life that he might have had with his role, pretty senior role that he had before um, and still has in, in healthcare. So that was great to hear. And his knowledge on just even like species of plankton, I was really yeah, amazed. Yeah, I love by. it. I know. Somehow it's not something you expect a doctor to be talking about. I don't know why. I, Of course, he's an expert in this, but he's not a marine biologist, but he has a, a fantastic knowledge about all these things. These are things he's researched so heavily because of his passion. And that's what keeps him going. That's what, you know, even if he is incredibly busy. I spoke to him really late at night. I can't remember what it was. You know, he had a really busy day and he could only do late at night. And he just he was just like, no, no, I, you know, I love it. It's great. Let's do it. Um, and he's Incredible. so enthusiastic. So with that, LJ, what do you think? Um, you know, we've heard about COP27 at the beginning of the you know, of this talk a long time ago, probably it seems, listeners. And we were, you know, we were trying to be positive about it. But overall, we're a bit disappointed. Um has uh, Richard made you more or less optimistic about the uh, the, you know, the climate future? Hmm, great question. I think probably a bit of both, to be honest. So I'm mm -hmm. definitely guilty of focusing on carbon footprint and air quality. Um, and the ocean, as he says, is a bit out of sight, out of mind for a lot of us. But I think he makes the importance of ocean health so clear and he makes the links to healthcare really clear. Because I have to be honest, when I first heard of, you know, NHS ocean I was a bit like how is this relevant but he describes the many ways in which healthcare has an impact on the ocean and how that then links back into climate change and therefore um, impacts on health so it's this sort of circular idea of needing to care for all of the parts of what we're delivering and how we're doing that um, and I think when he talked about the importance of the Gulf Stream for the temperature in Newcastle that really hit yeah. home because <laughs> yeah. really interesting you know, wasn't it yeah yeah like climate tipping points like the Gulf Stream are just they are what populate my nightmares yeah and when it is I find it very difficult to conceptualize and think when when is that change going to be I mean is it is it going to be this gradual thing or potentially it could be potentially it could be more of a, a shutting off and suddenly things could change the Gulf Stream changes and that's it like climate as we know it where we live will just be forever forever gone bizarre it's very hard to get your head around um and very concerning as, yeah. as we're all aware um 
but then he, you know there was lots of positives there there was lots of things you know things we could do um both which are in development or things we can be doing now like his success with the shipping industry and this idea that yes i had this idea that ships were bad and in a sense yes there are but if used appropriately and properly with the right fuel actually they can be a force for good and if we focus on that sort of thing then we can really make a difference and i thought that was really really important and actually he he's obviously thought about these things a lot to figure out what's what is the way we can make a difference and how you know the sort of sacrifices we'll have to make like we still need to bloody move things around the world and what's the best way forward i thought it was a really practical way of looking at things yeah, I agree. I think tackling healthcare procurement is a really like tangible way that mm. actually the things that he's interested in, he can have an impact on, we can have an mm-hmm. impact on. So sometimes it can seem like too distant, but actually thinking, well, we need to use the strength of the NHS, the power of the NHS as a massive purchaser of healthcare um, equipment to then say, well, we'll only trade with companies who are taking this seriously and and having things in procurement contracts is really strong um and being able to have a a united voice to um work with these big companies and impact how much shipping happens it just it made it much more tangible as to how this is relevant so i think it's really impressive what he's doing and how he's having impact yeah that's great and i liked his little bit of a practical advice he uh, he recommended um sunscreen Athic, um, which apparently is the only proven um, sunscreen which doesn't damage the coral reef. So I thought that was pretty good too. Good recommendation. Um, I was definitely aware of the problems of sunscreen and, and yeah. them damaging coral and I always look out for the labels, but that's not a brand I'd heard of. So I'll have to check them out. And, and apparently, well, yeah, apparently it's the only one which is actually proven. So I think that's one that you, I think, who knows, there probably are sort of other versions out there, but apparently when I was looking at it, that's the only one which is proven. So again, good recommendation. And with my bald head, it's probably quite a good idea. I actually once came up with this idea for a study and then everyone laughed at me. I don't know why I suddenly just thought about it. I thought that. I thought we should check the economy. I have so many ridiculous ideas. People in the office are just like, oh God, here he goes again. But I was thinking we should check the vitamin D levels of lots of people and compare if people are bald or have got lots of hair. Because if you've got like a just a load of skin there, do you do you get more sunlight and then more vitamin D? And I was like, that's ridiculous. I was like, well, we'll just make bored people feel better. If they <laughs> I was going to say, what's, what's the major outcome that would come from this study? If they have that one win. One okay, win. one win. All one right. win. And that's, um, <laughs> that's how my mind works, listeners. You're welcome, everybody. And if somebody wants to steal that idea, please go ahead. Um, lovely. Okay. I think that was a, I love that. I love the interview. Listeners, I really hope you found it useful. There's some really good practical tips in there and some really good ways of just understanding what's going on, which I think he did so well. Um, And one of the things, issues we talked about with Richard was uh, that of plastics, um, and actually, more importantly, the microplastics. And uh, whilst I was at the European Respiratory Society conference, there was a brilliant talk by a Professor Barbara Melchert from uh, the Netherlands. And afterwards, I sort of crept up and said, hey, Barbara, yeah. And I asked her some awkward questions, actually, about um, how people should be more, do you think doctors should be more political, you know, and then rather than just sitting back and listening to your talk. And anyway, she did. She still agreed to do an interview. So the next Climate Zone listeners will be on microplastics. Um, prepare to have the 
plasticity of your mind's blown. It's really interesting. She's done some cutting edge research on the effect of microplastics on um, sort of uh, or, human tissues, essentially, and why we probably, well, yeah, there's, there's, we need to know about them, we need to be aware of them, and we need to figure out what we're going to do about them. So we'll talk all about that in the next episode. Oh, I look forward to that. Yeah, microplastics are another another thing that slightly is on the edge of my nightmares. So it's, I'd be really... Yeah. It's just on, the, just on the edge there. And we just don't have quite all the information to know that if they are really scary or not. And then the more that comes out, which Barbara will talk about, the more we go, oh God, all right, okay. okay <laughs> but she gives some useful, useful, useful tips as well. myself for that, but yeah. definitely look forward to, to hearing from such an expert. But on a more positive note, the next episode will be the first Journal Spotting Christmas special <gasps> where uh, LJ and I have spent a lot of time going through a lot of articles um, to analyse Christmas songs and why they are dangerous or not to health. So anyway, it'll be a lot of fun. And, I'll be um, wearing my Christmas jumper. I'll be wearing yes. my pies. So oh, get yourself yes. ready. That's it. Let's have some mulled wine while we're doing it. So lots to look forward to, listeners. And uh, anyway, have a, have a happy Christmas. Bye. Bye, guys. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. LJ Smith. Information and links from the show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, or on Twitter. If you've enjoyed the show, subscribe and leave us a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, or email journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests, and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.